I'm excited to be able to, to teach this morning. And often when we take a break from our current series, so we're in the, a New Testament epistle, a letter in uh, Romans. And so I decided as I looked at our core values, that's often what we'll do. We'll sort of take a, take a one-week break and focus on those. And as I looked at those, um, the list of core values, the one that sort of jumped out as the one that I personally feel like I need to improve, that the Holy Spirit is really impressing upon me to, uh, <clears throat> to, to improve upon is prayer. And I thought it might be a good idea for us to jump back into the Old Testament, into the book of Nehemiah. So if you have a Bible, you can open up to Nehemiah chapter 1. The, um, the reference up there to 348, uh, Sean mentioned, is actually wrong. It's a typo. It's 398. So if you are using a pew Bible, which is the Bible's under the chairs around you, it's actually at 398. Um, but if you have your own Bible, turn there to Nehemiah chapter 1. It's in the Old Testament. So we're going to look at some historical um, goings-on with the people of Israel and also learn from Nehemiah, <clears throat> who was a man of prayer. Um, as I look back over my life uh, as a Christian, I can see that there has been a lot of ups and downs with my own discipline of prayer. When I first became a Christian, as most uh, people, when they first become a Christian, there's this zeal, this excitement, and I, I was um, spending much more time in fervent prayer. In fact, the first time I was given the opportunity to oversee a ministry, um, and really was one of the first times that I felt like God was calling me to do something like this full-time, was, was leading a, a prayer meeting in the afternoons every day during the week at the small church that I got saved at. And it was one of the most uh, powerful times in my life. And then things fell apart sort of there in my life. And I took a dip and I was looking for a church and I was in a place then where my prayer just sort of descended and it was a difficult time for me. And then I got plugged back into a, a healthy church and a healthy church context. And again, my prayer life began to increase. And I've seen these ups and downs throughout my life. Obviously having little kids your time is not your own when you have these tiny little creatures yelling at you all the time. So prayer was a challenge when I first had little kids. I still have a toddler, and it, it is a challenge at times. But this discipline of prayer is something that I've always come back to and um, really wanting to press in and think about currently in my current season, and I hope that you do as well. So wherever you are in your journey, uh, walking with God or in your habit of prayer, whether it's one that you're not investing much time or perhaps you're new to the faith and this is something that's new to you and you're thinking through how I ought to do this. Um, or if you're as Trudy describes herself, a prayer warrior, right? She's been praying for this church for years as many of you have. Um, and, and there are many of us in here who have that longstanding discipline of doing that. And um, I think regardless of where we are, we will learn something from this passage. And so Nehemiah chapter one, I'll read the text for us, and then we'll pray. <clears throat> Nehemiah chapter 1, starting at verse 1, it says this, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year as I was in the Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. They said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, 
confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments and statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by the great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was the cupbearer to the king. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, what an amazing reality that you are a God who speaks and you are a God who listens. You speak to us in your word and you in, in... Treat us to speak back to you, to to speak with you in prayer, to listen to you in prayer, God, and and what an amazing truth that is, and yet we fall so short, Lord. We have committed so many wrongdoings, we've done so many things that separate us from you, and yet still you reach out to us and ask us to meet with you in prayer, and I ask now as we open up this, this section of the word that you would help open all of our hearts and minds to improve on this reality and to really just press in and enjoy your presence this morning. So it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Before we get into some of the principles that I think are really helpful and highlighted in this section of Nehemiah, uh, I thought it would be a good idea, obviously, to set the stage for what's happening because we're jumping back into a historical book in the Old Testament. And what's really going on here, Nehemiah was an Israelite. He was a a Jew, uh, <clears throat> and he grew up in the time of captivity to foreign invaders. So the people of Israel obviously were delivered out of Egypt. They went, they, they conquered, they created um, their cities, and they built all of these amazing things. They built the temple of God in Jerusalem under Solomon, and then, uh, and then they began to not follow the rules of God. They started to worship other gods and go after false idols and do all sorts of things that were against the covenant as Nehemiah referenced here. As a result, God saw fit to basically to punish them and to send King Nebuchadnezzar, who was the Babylonian emperor, to come and um, take captive most of the Jewish people in Israel. So Nehemiah finds himself in captivity. Now, after Nebuchadnezzar took charge or took control of all of these people, even though there was some that were left behind in the rubble in Jerusalem, um, another empire rose up, the Persian Empire, led by Cyrus, and um, he overthrew the Babylonians and so inherited these Israelites. Um, Under Cyrus and his predecessor, Darius, the Jewish people led by Zerubbabel and Ezra, so this is during that time of, of Persian captivity, they gave Zerubbabel and Ezra the ability to go back and start to rebuild. That's what we read about in Ezra, the book right before Nehemiah, which in uh, the Jewish text, these books are actually one book, and so they overlap quite a bit. But in that text, they go back and they rebuild the temple, and they're working in that regard. And so Nehemiah finds himself in this situation. In Nehemiah's time, he's under this new emperor, and his name is Artaxerxes. And And Nehemiah finds himself as the cupbearer to the king. This was a very important job um, to to be the cupbearer because the king's life was always in danger, right? People wanted to topple the throne. And so 
the cup of the king was often subject to being poisoned and things like that. So Nehemiah was tasked with protecting the cup, and he was able to be in the presence of the emperor often. But of course, it was a job that was important, but it was also kind of difficult. Your life could be required if you drank the cup before the king and it was poisoned then you might find yourself not alive anymore. Um, but Nehemiah <clears throat> was in this position. What was nice about it is he was able to have an interaction with the king that not many people had. And that allowed him to kind of weigh in on government issues and political issues. And so this is where we kind of jump into the story as Nehemiah is in this situation. And he hears from his brother what's going on in Jerusalem. And it seems like he's responding to what's happening. God is obviously working in his heart to lead him to take action. But he could have just said, oh, now I enjoy my cushy position as the cupbearer. I get to live in the palace. Um, yes, I could be poisoned, but pretty much mostly I won't be poisoned. I'll enjoy a, a nice time here. He could have ignored the plight of his people. He could have forgotten the promises that God made. Um, so he's in that position, and yet he decides not to do that. He decides to take action, which we'll see in a minute. So there's three big ideas that I'd like to highlight from this section. Um, we'll go over the, each of them in turn. The first one is that effective prayer is not merely reactionary, but it is regular. So it's not something that happens just as a reaction to something that's going on in our lives, but it ought to be something that is a regular rhythm within our lives. Now, this situation, to be sure, he is reacting to a crazy situation. And so prayer is oftentimes reactionary, but it should not only be that way, right? And we don't know much about Nehemiah, but I think from this text and elsewhere throughout the book, we see that he does have and is a man of prayer. He has a habit um, of prayer. In verse 4, we see that he continued to pray and fast. And while that indicates he spent considerable time in this, about this issue, praying and fasting, this seems to be a part of a, a pattern, a habit of prayer for him. Later in the book, he frequently leads his people in prayer. He participates in a very important uh, corporate worship service, a dedication at the temple later on. And so this is something that seems to be a rhythm for him. <clears throat> but in this instance, he is reacting to what is happening. So prayer, though, needs to be something that is a regular discipline in our lives. If the only time we turn to God is when things are falling apart, when things are difficult, when we are in need, then we sort of are looking at God as sort of our personal first responder, right? We're not thinking about God as our father, as our counselor, as the person um, whom we go to to rest on and learn from in prayer, um, I've dealt with the fire department a couple times in my life. One time I remember when I was like in middle school, we, I lived in Southern California, and we lived next to a field, um, and it was like overgrown, it was the middle of summer, and if you know California, fire season's all year round, it's like always on fire. Um, and something, something happened, the, fire, the, the field got lit on fire, I don't know if it was my brother playing with matches maybe, but it got caught on fire, so I remember I went out there with a the hose and we were watering down uh, the buildings, and we were watering down the fire, and then the fire department came, and they put it out, which was, uh, you know, obviously saved a lot of those homes. It was a crazy situation, but oftentimes, if we think of God like this as our firefighter who's just putting out the blazes in our lives, and we're not thinking about him like uh, a father and a counselor spending time with him in meaningful fellowship, then we are narrowing down our idea of who God is, and so it's important that we keep that regular rhythm. Imagine for a moment the person, and I won't ask you to close your eyes because that's a little weird, but think about the person that you are closest to in your life. Maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's a friend, maybe it's a brother or sister. 
And imagine that the only time you have a meaningful conversation with that person is when things are really rough, the handful of times during the year when you're really going through a difficult time, and that's the time when you speak with them. Would you say that that is a healthy relationship with that person? Probably not, right? So the point is that we need to invest time on a regular basis with God in order to enjoy the company that he gives us and the, the, re, the comforts and all that comes with that, not just going to him in those um, reactionary times. We see throughout scripture that regularity in prayer is something that is encouraged. We see this in Daniel, <clears throat> uh, just you know, a little bit before Nehemiah's time, Daniel was captured under uh, Nebuchadnezzar, and he got down in Daniel 6, it says this, he got down on his knees three times a day, and he prayed and gave thanks before his God, as he had done previously. This was a part of his rhythm. Um, that's not to say that all of our rhythms need to be this three times a day, but it was his, and he kept it regularly, and he did not stop, even though the king told him not to pray to anyone else but him, as we looked at not long ago. Uh, then we jump forward in the New Testament. Luke tells us in chapter 5 that Jesus' rhythm of prayer, uh, he would often withdraw to desolate places, we read in 5.16. We see really throughout the Gospels, he would commonly do this. So he had this rhythm of spending time with the Father, even though he himself as God the Son. Uh, when Jesus taught about prayer in Matthew 6 and in Luke 11, he told them to, to go before God with daily requests, right? He said, give us this day our daily bread. So it was something that was done on a daily basis, going before God, um, often, you know, more than once per day. <clears throat> Thessalonians 5, 17 through 18 famously says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, right? Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now, praying without ceasing is kind of a difficult thing to get our minds around, but um, Tim Keller in his book on prayer, which I recommend to you if you're interested in the topic of prayer and you want to dig deeper, it's a really great, great read. But he just says that this basically means we should, as much as possible, do everything all day with conscience reference to God, uh, prayerful conscience reference to God. Um, if you don't have a time set aside in your day, in your week, to spend time with God in prayer, I encourage you today to take that step. Think through what that looks like for you. It could be a small step. It does not have to be three times a day for an hour each time. You may if you like, but I'm just telling you that regularity, I think, is what we see patterned in Scripture, and I was convicted in this regard, and so I have committed that, but I would just ask you to, you, in, your, in your own mind, think through how God would help you to make that small change. Kenneth Boa, who we reference often, he shares this uh, proverb. It's an old proverb. It's not from the Bible, but it is a helpful one, I think. Um, and it kind of helps, shows how habits uh, shape our character. So it says, sow a thought and reap an act. So if we have the thought that we ought to perhaps spend more time in prayer, if it stays a thought, it's only a thought. But if we sow it, if we put it to work, then we will reap the act of prayer. But if it stays there, then it will not have the full effect, right? But if we sow an act then we reap a habit. And if we sow that habit, if we keep that habit going as a, as a constant in our lives, we will reap from it a character. It will shape our characters. And ultimately, our characters that are sowed and invested will reap a destiny. And I think this is sort of echoed in Romans 12, what we went over a few months ago, where there the Apostle Paul tells us to be transformed by the renewal of our mind, right? right? Not be conformed to this world in 12 
uh, one and two, <clears throat> but be transformed by the renewal of our mind. And I think that's what happens when we have that habit of prayer that's regular, that's not just reactionary. The second thing I want us to think about is effective prayer is not merely communication, but it is communion. It's more than communication. Now, it is communication, obviously. All prayer is talking to God at its essence, but it is more than just speaking. It's not something that's shallow. It's something that has depth and meaning. It is communion. It's intimate. It's relational. And I think I'm mostly guilty of this at mealtimes, right? Maybe you are too. Uh, we'll pray at mealtimes, which is a great habit to have because it, it helps us recognize that all the things that we have in our life are from God, and it's a helpful time to pause and to recognize that, to pray over a meal. It's given me opportunity to teach my children about prayer and to teach my children about how God provides and all those sorts of things. So praying at mealtimes is a great rhythm to have, but often, too often, at least in my life, and maybe you can, you can relate, the prayer is sort of rushed through quickly just so we can get our food, you know, and we can eat, right? Rub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub. And we do that, but, I mean, is that really communing with God, or are we just sort of saying words? Are we just sort of speaking? Um, it might be better, and this is a little controversial, okay? So if you have complaints, you can email them to codya at canbechristian.org. Yeah, is that not a, okay. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, if you come to the mealtime and things are crazy and you have toddlers hitting things and you have noise and all these sorts of things and you can't sort of correlate everyone and have them focus and communing with God and having the right mindset, perhaps it's better to just maybe skip it that meal. Guess what? The food's not poisoned. You will live. Uh, so perhaps that's a good thing to do because the point is to commune and really understand what we're doing in prayer. Um, now, that's not to say that it's a bad habit. Obviously, it's a good habit to pray at mealtimes, but I'm just thinking through these things, and perhaps that is something we ought to think about. Another way that we are communicating with God, but we're not actually communing with him or spending quality time with him is we treat God kind of like a cashier at McDonald's sometimes, where we're just sort of like, hi, God, I'll take one new job, and also I'll throw in a, can you throw in a better attitude for my neighbor who's grouchy, and I'll take one small, um, you know, obedient child. Thanks. Like, that's your prayer. And um, I'm guilty of this. Perhaps you are too. If we just go to God sort of in that way, thinking that God sort of serves us rather than we serve God, and that's just not the case. We might be communicating to God, but we're not actually allowing his presence to affect us. We're not communing with him. Um, what we see in Nehemiah's prayer is a genuine understanding of who God is, right, and who he is. Uh, and that leads us to a substantial, not necessarily a long prayer. His prayer is, is moments long. It's not incredibly long, but it is substantial. It has substance, right? It's respectful. It's, ultimately, it's effective. He's understanding who he's speaking to, and he's communing with God in a meaningful way. So let's look at the elements of Nehemiah's prayer and think through how we can commune with God, not just talk at him, communicate to him. Uh, one, one of the things that I think would be helpful for us to look at is a, a famous acronym that many of you may know, um, ACTS, A-C-T-S. This we see highlighted in Nehemiah's prayer, and I think it will be helpful for us if we don't have these in our notes, if we don't have these in our mind, to think through as we are investing time in prayer. Um, this acronym stands for, or the, the, the letters in the acronym, A, is adoration, we ought always to begin our prayers by adoring God, by looking at who God is and thinking about the amazing reality um, that he presents to the world, right? Reflecting on the goodness. And we see this as 
Nehemiah opens his prayer. He says, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. So he's reflecting on the amazing reality of who God is. He is adoring him in that moment and beginning the prayer in this, in this uh, feeling of adoration. But of course, as we adore God and we recognize the amazing reality of who God is, that inevitably leads us to look at ourselves, right? And to think, we are not that way. Uh, we are, fall far short, and so that leads to confession, which is C. In light of who God is, we ought to be uh, mindful of who we are. And Nehemiah calls himself a servant. He's assuming a humble position before God and the proper posture, and he confesses. He talks about the wrongdoings that he has done. He says, I have sinned. My father has sinned. He talks about the, the, the sins of all of the people who have turned from God and not followed the statutes that he put forward there to the people of God. And he's bringing all these things up and, and talking about confession because it's incredibly important part of prayer. And it's probably the part that we are most likely to sort of overlook because it's hard. It's hard to think about the wrong things in our own heart, in our own life. It's hard to reflect on those things, but it's incredibly necessary. I'm reminded of um, Luke 18 when, when Jesus is telling the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Two men go to the temple. They go to pray. And the Pharisee, who's a religious person, he seems like he has everything put together, right? He goes up there and he prays this prayer about, look how great I am. I tithe all this. I do all that. I'm much better than these riffraff people. Look at me, God. No confession in his prayer. The other man, though, the tax collector who recognizes who he is before God, he simply says this in Luke 18, 14, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be uh, humbled and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So confession is incredibly important element of prayer because otherwise it's effectively just talking in the air. That other man who seemed to pray really well was not justified in his prayers, but this man who said a short one-sentence prayer that was, that was penitent, that was honest, was recognizing who God is and who he is, and he was confessing his need for God was an effective prayer. So confession is incredibly important for us. Let us not overlook it. Um, Thanksgiving, the next thing we see that Nehemiah does is he begins to talk about the promises of God. He, he begins to reflect on the, the amazing reality of how God has taken the people out and how he has promised to bring them back. If they sin, they will be scattered, but if they listen and obey, they will be brought back, they will be rebuilt. And in a spirit of thanksgiving, which is he, he's, he's, being thank, he's being thankful and giving thanks for the reality of God's promises, and, um, and that's what we see in, in Nehemiah's prayer. And we ought also to ensure that in light of our confession, guess what? God actually does forgive those people who do confess. And so we ought to be thankful for that, not only for forgiveness, but the many other things that we have in our life. The last element is supplication, which is sort of a word that's a little bit weird, a little bit Christianese, but essentially it just means a desperately a humble request um, asking for things from God in a way that is, is right, with our hearts in the right place. This is the final stage, right, where we ask about our deepest desires of our hearts, and we ask also for our basic needs, the things that we need, our daily bread, as Jesus uh, taught the disciples, right? Supplication then forces us to recognize that nothing comes from our work, from our abilities. It all comes from God, and therefore everything that we need, we should go before God and ask. And Nehemiah has an important and difficult request. He 
he is facing down this emperor of Persia who could easily take his life, and he, is, he has this burden to go and help his people fulfill the promises of God and rebuild what was been destroyed, but this king could easily take his life, and so he's in this difficult situation, and he asks in verse 11, give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, and he's talking about Artaxerxes, but these four things, right, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication, there are things that I think would be helpful for us to have in our minds as we are dedicating time in prayer, and we should, pro- we should do them so often that they become like muscle memory. We're just so ingrained into who we are when we get into prayer that we will um, just jump right into it without really a lot of thought in the process. Um, I'm reminded of when I was in high school. I used to work at KFC. And I worked in the drive-thru, and it, this was before the time of pre-recorded messages. We know you go to the drive-thru, and it's like a recorded, and it's like a different voice. That didn't happen. So back when I was in, in KFC, I actually had to give the greeting every time, not a recorded message, and I remember it still because I did it so many times, and it was, thank you for choosing KFC. This is Rob. How can I help you? Thank you for choosing KFC. This is Rob. How can I help you? Thank you for choosing, and I just did it all day, all the time. And then what happened was after I got off my shift, I went home and the phone rang. <laughs> I picked up the phone. Thank you for choosing KFC. This is uh, 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 And I didn't know what to do because I just immediately jumped into that. And this is back when landlines existed. And I, I, so I hung up the phone. I don't even know who it was. I have no idea. But all that I know is like it was something that was so in me, this greeting that I would give constantly. It was something that just came out of me naturally. It was so ingrained in who I was at that point. And I think the same, is, the same ought to be true for us when we look and we come to the times of prayer that we have these elements so into our spirit and into our mind that they just flow forth. We adore God. We confess our sins. We are so thankful for who he is and we ask the things that we need. You know, like those are just things that come out of us naturally. And so I think we see that in Nehemiah and I think we ought to aspire to that as well. Uh, practice those steps and they will be helpful for us. But ultimately we know based on uh, Nehemiah's knowledge of God's word, that the person in ultimate control of history was not this Persian king, even though he was fearful, and we'll see in a moment. He's not this Persian king, but rather it was the king of kings. It was the Lord of hosts. Yahweh was ultimately in charge. And so he goes to him to commune with him in a meaningful way in prayer uh, before going through with this task that he has before him. I'm reminded with regard to the importance, the heart of prayer, is communing with God. Uh, C.S. Lewis said in one of his essays, prayer in the sense of petition, asking for things is a small part. It's just a small part of prayer. Confession and penitence are its threshold. That's the way that we enter into prayer is going before God, confessing and repenting. Adoration is its sanctuary. That's where we spend our time is adoring God. Uh, And then finally he says, the presence and vision and enjoyment of God It's bread and wine. The feast, spending time with God, is the purpose and the heart of prayer. And all of the elements that surround it, support it, are are important. But we ought to be mindful of the fact that communion with God is our aim, not just communication. The last point that we see here is that effective prayer is not merely passive, but it is productive. It leads to change. It will produce change. It's not just passive practice. Um, more often than not, it will change us, it will change our hearts, it will change the way we think about things um, as, we, as we meet with God in prayer. 
It will help us make small changes in our lives or large changes in our lives. Perhaps God will fuel us for stepping out in faith in a way that is difficult, like Nehemiah is facing. Maybe there's something like that in your life that you're faced with and you're thinking and praying before God to help give you the courage to to follow his word. Um, And so all of those things lead to change. It's not a passive action. It will produce change. Uh, The one thing, though, it does not change is is God's mind, right? God is set. He is sovereign. He's in control. And so we have this difficult kind of understanding. Why pray if God knows everything and he's in control? Um, And I I don't have time to get into that question. Perhaps we can discuss it on the podcast maybe. But um, the missionary E. Stanley Jones, I think, helps us with a quote uh, where he explains, he says this, if I throw out a boat hook from the boat and catch hold of the shore and pull, do I pull the shore to me or do I pull my boat to the shore? Prayer is not pulling God to my will, but aligning my will to the will of God. And so even though it may look in some instances that after we pray, the, the land is coming to us, we're sort of, we ask for things and God provides the things that we ask for. Did we make that happen? No. <clears throat> Rather, we are aligning our will with God's will. And Nehemiah knows, he doesn't know exactly how the specific circumstances that God will, will work out in, in, this, in this scenario that he is in. But what he does know is that God is good and that God is faithful to his promises. That's how he opens that prayer. He's faithful to his promises. And so he is aligning his will, Nehemiah, with God's will. And he's about to stand before this king who could take his life, and he is fearful. Um, too often, I think we fall into the trap of thinking that whatever hard decisions that are happening in our lives, that we need to have sort of this feeling of peace. Have you ever said this? I think I know I have, where it's like someone encouraged, oh, you, you ought to go talk to that person. You ought to go, you, you, you ought to stop doing that because that's not honoring to the Lord. And I think, oh, you know, I prayed about it, and I, I just don't have a peace about it. And we can sort of say this thing, and I think maybe people mean well because they're thinking about perhaps the text in, in Philippians where the peace of God surpasses all our understanding, and we sort of think that we need to have this peace to follow God's promises. But I think that's a wrong way to think. Um, having an overwhelming feeling of peace about the decision to confront the king, Nehemiah didn't have that. He, he still was, was going to fulfill the promises that he knew God was calling him to do. But he was anxious. He was worried. He didn't have any feeling of peace. We read in Nehemiah 2, starting in verse 1, in the month of Nisan, so this is actually sometime later, he's already been praying through this and worrying about this. In the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and I gave it to the king. He's the cupbearer, so he's giving the king the cup. Now I had not been sad in his presence, and the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing that you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. So he goes before the king, and even though he's been spending literally months at this point, praying before God, fasting, thinking, he does still at this point does not have sort of an overwhelming peace. If nothing else, he has, he's timid, he's worried, he's not sure how this will pan out. And so he's fearful. He was scared, uh, even terrified, very much afraid. And maybe, you know, a common scenario that we find ourselves in perhaps often is when we are at work or maybe we're meeting with neighbors or family or friends and the conversation will sort of turn one way and then all of a sudden you realize there's a good opportunity to share about who God is and, and the gospel and who, what you think about with, you know, God. And this sinking feeling comes into our stomach and we become afraid. Um, 
what will they think of me? What if I say something dumb? Or what if I can't answer their questions? And, and having those th- feelings are legitimate. If anything, it should point to our need and our desire to train ourselves in those points. Um, but just the feeling doesn't mean that God is saying you don't need to or you ought not to fulfill what God has called you to do. The Bible tells us in uh, 2 Corinthians 5 that we are the ambassadors of Christ and God is making his appeal through us. In that moment, you have the calling upon you as a Christian to be an ambassador and to make an appeal for God to that person, you know, win- winsomely and gently and kindly, but you're in that position and you can either make a decision based on your feelings or you can make a decision based on what God has promised. And Nehemiah here is making a decision based on the promises that God has shared through his word. Even though he was scared, he still stepped up. And verse three says this, I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city of the, and the place of my father's graves lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Even in the midst of this conversation, in the middle of their back and forth, he pauses to pray. And no doubt he didn't, you know, go down on his knees and fold his hands and do acts, adoration, confession, thanksgiving. But he was in that moment a silent, short prayer, communing with God in a real way. No doubt it's the words of his prayer are not, are not um, recorded for us. But I think this is really a good example of what we see, like we read earlier from Thessalonians, praying without ceasing. He's taking just a still moment to pray and ask God, help me, because I'm about to ask something that could be very dangerous for me to ask. And so Nehemiah does that as he is communing with God. And then in verse five, it continues. Let's see what happens. And and I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given a name, or sorry, given a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors in the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, and for the walls of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked for, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Which is, at every moment, Nehemiah turns the the victories, the successes back to God. The good hand of my God was upon me. But it's funny that he did not necessarily know that. He didn't say that prior to this. In fact, he was fearful. He was worried. He wasn't sure how God would work in this situation. But in hindsight, he took that step of faith and he realized, yes, God was upon me, and he had, not only did he get permission to go do this, but the king gave him a bunch of resources. He gave him passage through the land, all of these wonderful things. Um, and this is because Nehemiah has taken his faith and put it into practice. He's taken his prayer, which is a regular practice for him, communing with God and actually making it productive, not just passive, and putting it into action. Um, and God was faithful to his promise, and, <clears throat> and he had his good hand upon Nehemiah. So we can learn from Nehemiah, who is a good example of a man of prayer and action, that prayer, effective prayer is not merely uh, reactionary, but it is regular. It's not just communicating, but it's communion. 
and it is not merely passive, but it is productive. But in closing, I'll just say this. If Nehemiah is just an example for us to follow, and if we just try harder to be like Nehemiah, we will inevitably get frustrated, and it will lead only to failure, if that's the only way that we look at this situation. But jumping ahead to the book of Nehemiah, uh, spoiler alert, it's a really good book. I suggest that you do read through it. It's not very long, but at the end of the book, or throughout the book, he is... He goes to Jerusalem, he rebuilds the walls, he meets with Ezra, who's the, the priest and the scribe, and they have this uh, wonderful worship service, and they have this um, revitalization of the people of God. They agree, we're going to follow the commandments, we're going to follow the laws, but ultimately what happens is they don't follow through, and they fall short, and though they say with their mouth they're going to follow the covenant, their hearts are not committed to God. And so at the end of Nehemiah chapter 13, literally, he's going around, pulling them around by their hair and beating them because they're not following. <laughs> you just made this promise. Why are you disobeying it still? And it's wild. And at the very last thing that he says in verse 31 of chapter 13, he just prays desperately, remember me, oh my God, for good. I tried, Lord, I, I really tried. I tried to fulfill your plan. And most of the people that were there, they just truly did not turn to him. Well, why? Why is this? Well, God had a bigger plan, right? He had a, a vision for his people that was bigger than just what Nehemiah was thinking. God knew these people did not need another earthly temple or an earthly city. What they needed was a temple that was not built by human hands, a temple that was perfect and eternal, that would never pass away, that perfectly held the essence of who God is. And of course, I'm talking about Jesus Christ himself, who 500 years after this event went to that same temple mount and he saw that the corruption continued there amongst the religious people. They were putting tables, they were charging money for worshipers, and they were doing all of these things to hinder the people of God. So he threw over the tables and they asked him, who gives you the authority to do this? In John 2, 19 to 22, we read this. Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So the, God, uh, the, the apostle John here through the Holy Spirit is letting us know that Jesus is saying, I am the true temple, this building that has not housed the presence of God for literally centuries is not the temple I am. Nehemiah was faithful to his calling in his day to further the work of God because there was a purpose for what he was doing. But that work was meant to point toward the need for a Messiah, to Jesus who is our ultimate temple, the fulfillment of the promises that he reflects on in his prayers. And the reality is, just like the Israelites in Nehemiah's day, it is not going to take just our effort, our attempt to be holy, our checking the box of our prayer time that's going to earn our favor with God, but rather it's the reality that we need to come to, which is that we are desperately sinful and that we are in need of a Savior. Jesus has done that. He is that perfect temple. He didn't just show the people how to come and to worship. He didn't give them a way in which to be right with God. He actually sacrificed himself to be the way for us to get to God by our faith in him, by our trust in his work on the cross and through his resurrection and the hope that comes with that. That's the only hope that we have to really embrace 
a meaningful prayer life or a meaningful connection with God himself. So if you have not done that, if you're not a Christian, then that would be the first step today is to think about your need for God, repent and follow him. If you are a believer, if you're a brother and sister in Christ and your prayer life is in a situation where it's not thriving, perhaps you're, you, you're trying to do it out of your own strength as these Israelites were doing in Nehemiah's day and you're not reflecting on the grace that God has given us, that Jesus has made a way, and you're not depending entirely on him. So I'd ask you to reflect on those things and think about those things. And hopefully, by God's grace and by the Holy Spirit, we may see a revival you know, in us, in our, in our zeal to pray, to meet with God. And so let's do that now. Let's pray, and then we'll partake of communion. Heavenly Father, we, we recognize, Lord, we adore you for, for your goodness, for your amazing uh, reality of who you are, that you would come down here, Jesus, that you would meet us where we are and that you would be the temple that we need so that we may meet with God in a way that was never opened before you came, Jesus. I ask now as we, as we pray that we would all have in our hearts uh, confessing to you the things that we are falling short in, God. Help us to be better to pray, to help us to be uh, put our prayers into action and not just sit back and, and, and depend on feelings, but really depend on the promises that you have before us, Lord. God, I, I just ask that, that you would, you know, see our hearts and, and listen to the prayers of your people, as Nehemiah has said, and we just long to hear from you today. It's in Jesus' name that I pray, amen.